Well, I'm going to ask you to turn with me in the Word of God to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. And our text is verse 12. I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand now. Whether you're here or you're watching us on the live stream. Stand now as we hear the reading of the holy, infallible, inspired and an errant word of the living God. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. As we come to our text this morning, particularly in verse 12, it may feel to some of us that we've been here before as the Apostle Paul initiates this final string of parting exhortations to the church saying, but we request of you, brethren. And I said that it may uh, cause us to feel like we've been here before because Paul uses virtually the same words in chapter 4, verse 1. Finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus. That language of we request and we exhort means that the Apostle Paul, even back in chapter 4, verse 1, was moving towards practical and ethical exhortation for the church. He was done expounding the historical past. He was done expounding doctrine. And he was moving now to address the church about how to live for Christ in view of the gospel. But you'll remember, he took a detour. By the time you get to verse 13, it's very obvious to us that the Apostle Paul needed to address a current and live and real issue in the congregation of Thessalonica, and that was uh, Christians grieving as those who had no hope as they mourned the passing of fellow believers in Christ. And so to take up that particular matter, the Apostle Paul brought in the heavy artillery of the doctrine of eschatology to answer it. And he spoke about the hope of the resurrection and the day of the Lord, which in turn led to a, a rather lengthy discussion about the day of the Lord and about how the believer is to respond to it. But as you come back into our text, as you reach verse 12, it is apparent that the Apostle Paul is tacking back. He, he's tracking back now, reconnecting to this idea of giving exhortation to the church and I think the one thing that we want to pick up on here and perceive as we come into the set of exhortations found in verse 12 is they are very congregation-centric, if you will. They are very church-centric. The other ones were a little bit more about personal Christianity. It's very evident here that the things that the Apostle Paul begins to address to the people of God, to the church, are a very specific set of exhortations about how to live. In fact, you might be able to use the word best practices. That set of guidelines and principles which are the most useful and effective at reaching a goal. In other words, a maturing, strong, blessed, prosperous church. And it's of interest to us that as the Apostle Paul takes up these exhortations and proclaims them to the church, he begins in the first place with pastor-congregational relationship. 
the very first thing that the Apostle Paul addresses about the life and the health of the church is the pastor and the congregational relationship. And you can see that indicated in the first exhortation in verse 12. You appreciate those who diligently labor among you. And again in verse 13, you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. But we could say the summary of this exhortation with all of its impact is found at the end of verse 13 when he says, live at peace with one another. Live at peace with one another. The aim of the exhortation is that the pastor and the congregation would live at peace with one another. And the reason why this has the head position in the first place is if the pastor and the congregation are at strife, a church will not know God's blessing. A church where a pastor and congregation are not at one, aren't in agreement, is a congregation that will be unhealthy, it will not be blessed, it will not multiply, and it will not be cohesive. And the reason is simple. Because strife and disorder in the pastor-congregation relationship runs 100% counter to and is opposite of the aim and the purpose of the ministry. And we know that because the Apostle Paul recounts the aim and purpose of the ministry in Ephesians 4. He said it's been given to attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. To, as a result, we be no longer children tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine, but speaking the truth and love grow up in all respects unto Christ, who is the head. So the aim and purpose and reason for the ministry in the church is very simple. It's very plain. Unity of the faith and the knowledge, spiritual maturity, defense against trickery and false doctrine, and speaking the truth in love. That's the aim of the ministry in the church. And again, if there is an unsound relationship between pastor and congregation, the great and noble purposes and aim of the ministry will suffer. And so um, it is for some warrant that the Apostle Paul would speak of that to the Thessalonians. After all, if that's the purpose of the ministry in the church it would seem quite reasonable that the apostle would have this as a great concern. But then again, you can locate it, uh, that concern within the context of the church of Thessalonica and see another reason. And the reason is simply this, that the pastors of the congregation of the church of Thessalonica were relatively young in the ministry. At the time of the writing of this epistle, the church was barely even, well, over a year old. And it would have necessarily have been the case if the pastors were from that congregation that they would have spent the same time in grade, if you will, as the rest of the members of the church. And you can only imagine then how this would play into pastor-congregation relationships that there might just be the potential concern that those who have been in the faith the same amount of time as we are are now pastors, perhaps there would be a lack of respect and a lack of reverence for them because they may see them at their own level. 
And so here the Apostle Paul, just to ensure that's not taking root within the congregation, well, he makes it very clear that the duty of the church, in order to preserve its health, its maturity, its peace, well, that there would be soundness in the relationship between pastor and members. So what we have here in our text is in verse 12, uh, the call to appreciation, also in verse 13, and then the general exhortation to live at peace. That is, the whole relationship needs to be characterized as one which is at peace. And since this is so foundational to the life and the health of the church, I've decided to break this uh, uh, text down into two parts, the ministry of shepherding and the respecting of shepherds. So today what we want to do is just take up, first of all, the ministry of shepherding. Since the ministry and its institution, its role within the life of the church is so foundational, it seems proper and warranted to spend an entire message expounding upon the role of ministry within the church so that we have a, a solid footing and basis for receiving the moral exhortations of verses 12 and 13, which is to appreciate them and to esteem them and to be at peace with them. So what we're going to do just this morning then is tackle the idea of the ministry of shepherding. I'm going to unfold that in two parts. First of all, the institution of ministry and the calling of ministry. See, in order for us to respect and fulfill the moral and ethical obligation towards uh, pastors and ministers as shepherds, as we ought, we need to understand, first of all, the institution of this. And the reason why understanding the institution of ministry is so crucial is because we must always be ready to repeat this, that the ministry exists in the church not by human convention, but by Christ's divine appointment. The reason the relationship exists between pastor and congregation is not because a bunch of sanctified spiritual leaders somewhere in the past decided that the best way to deal with congregational ministry is to appoint some people to do the work while the rest would just be the, mem the members and receivers. The reason there is a ministry in the church and the reason the ministry is exactly what it is is because the ministry has been appointed by Christ. The ministry has been appointed by Jesus Christ, which means then that whenever members are dealing with ministers, they are dealing with Christ. Because Christ has appointed them to be his mouthpiece and representative. So we think, first of all, of the institution of ministry. I would invite you to turn with me outside of our text here to see how Paul expounds upon it in greater depth, which is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Our passage assumes the entire theology of the institution of the ministry, which Christ, or rather Paul, sets forth here. But I think it's warranted for us to think about this even just for a moment, because it enhances our understanding of the role of ministry and why it ought to be regarded as Paul commands here. And so the very first thing you would see here in verse 11, he gave some apostles and some prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers, is you see that the ministry is by Christ's institution, and I argue that from the verb gave. First of all, we notice Christ gave the ministry to the church. 
Christ gave the ministry to the church. And we know that's the case because Jesus Christ is the subject of the verb he gave. See that? The church didn't give the ministry to Christ and the church didn't give the ministry to the ministry. Christ gave the ministry to the church. We know Christ is the subject here because all you have to do is go back to verse 7 and see Christ is the dominant subject where the apostle says to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Christ is a subject in. As you come into verse 11, he is the actor. The apostle Paul puts Christ in the spotlight and the thing that he says that Christ did is give gifts. And notice the gifts. The gifts are spelled out here. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. So you could say in a sense that Christ gave the church a fourfold gift. But what's interesting here as you begin to examine the original and this would bear out as you'd study the rest of the New Testament, by the way, is that there is a distinction in the gifts given to the church. And we'd say it like this as Reformed people. There are extraordinary ministers given to the church and ordinary ministers given to the church. Extraordinary ministers and ordinary ministers. And those extraordinary Ministers would be, as the apostle lists them, according to their order. Apostles, prophets, and evangelists. Now, if you have the advantage of looking at that in the original this morning, what you would notice is that each one of those gifts is preceded by a definite article. So it would read, the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists. But that's different from the last. Because when you come into the end of verse 11, it literally says, the pastor teacher, which tells us that the last two terms are grouped together. And by that odd or unique transition within the text, they're of a different order. So it's the case with the extraordinary, the apostle, the prophet, and the evangelist, that they were the ones who communicated inspired revelation to the church. And when it comes to the pastor and teacher, it is the case that they are not the recipients of inspired revelation. They are the expositors of it, right? Because now their job is to receive this revelation as it's contained in the word of God and communicate it to the church. So you can see here, first of all, within this grouping in a verse uh, rather 11 here, the apostle Paul is making it clear that the ministry is within the church according to Christ's institution, pastor elders. Now, the thing about that construction leads me to make what you may feel is a picky point. And that is this idea of pastor-teacher seems to combine within it a couple of functions. You see, pastor means literally shepherd. It literally means shepherd. It is a term that is connected with the eldership and rule. But within the eldership, there are those who rule as shepherds. And there are those who rule as shepherds and preach. We didn't come up with that distinction. Paul did. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
we read of two kinds of elders in the church. 1 Timothy 5.17. There are those, he says, who rule well and they are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. You see that? The Apostle Paul says there are two kinds of people within the eldership. Those who rule only, and then those who rule plus work really hard at preaching and teaching. Now, one of the things I want to point out here is that word, work hard at preaching, is the very same term that we have in 1 Thessalonians 5.12, where the Apostle Paul refers to those who labor among you. Word ministry, preaching ministry. The point of it is to say that when the apostle is thinking here of pastor elder, pastor teacher, he's thinking about an elder who teaches. His primary function is that of being a minister of the word. That is what Christ has instituted in the church. What Christ has instituted as a permanent and ongoing ministry in the church is that there would be those who are called pastor teachers whose job is to minister as shepherds to rule within the congregation but have as an adjunct to that or alongside of that a calling to preach. And you see there's a great purpose for it as you continue looking at our text and moving on into verse 12. Here we begin to see what Christ has given this ministry for. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, and to the building up of the body of Christ. And again, I, I make what could possibly be a very picky point, but what one uh, seems to me a highly significant point. And uh, I can barely ever reference this text without beating up on the translation here. Because uh, the false translation... Or the bad and incorrect translation of our text leads to a false understanding of the ministry called the equipping ministry. It has spread like wildfire across evangelicalism and even the Reformed Church today, even though it's contrary to the Word of God. And this particular translation and this theology basically says that the ministry has one tiny little thing to do. And that one tiny little thing to do is to equip the saints who in turn do the work of service and build up the body of Christ. The only problem with it is it's false. As you can see for yourself in the translation, those are prepositional phrases. For, for, and the final one should be for, and it's translated to. A bad translation. You have three prepositional phrases, and they spell out the purpose of ministry. Just so you confirm for yourself that the translation, the clarification that I'm giving to you is the Reformed. Listen to the note from the Geneva Study Bible of the 16th century, which was the English Bible used by all Reformed and Presbyterians. He shows the aim of ecclesiastical functions, that is, by the ministry of men, all the saints may grow up together, that they may become one mystical body of Christ. The point of it is the reformers understood this text correctly. Pastor teachers perfect the saints. Pastor teachers do the work of ministry. Pastor teachers build up the body of Christ through the ministry of the word. You see, the old idea, or rather the new translation of, of equipping the saints is, is, a, is a significant mistranslation. 
Calvin himself notes the right translation here. He says, I prefer the term settlement or constitution, as he says, in the sense that a kingdom is said to be settled when confusion gives place to the administration of the law. The point is that the apostle, or rather, Calvin is saying that the role of the ministry is to settle a congregation. It is to unite it through the ministry of the word. To establish regular order in the congregation through the perpetual ministry of the word. And so here, what is outlined by the Apostle Paul is not just the fact that Christ appointed ministry in the church, but it marks out what ministers are doing. They are there for the constitution or the settling of the church, for doing the work of the ministry within the church, and for the building up of the saints through the ministry of the word. And so what I want us to do before we come back into our text and examine it, as we think about the particular things the Apostle Paul says the ministry of shepherding is to do within the congregation, is first of all, be sure that we are impressed with this, that the ministry of shepherding is what Christ has given. The ministry of shepherding is what Christ has given to his church. And it's not been given to the members, it's been given to the ministers. That means they're different in this sense. That their calling and their separation and their ordination and their installation into an office is to do what Christ has established and to do what Christ has established for the blessing of his church. And when that's not understood and when that's not honored and when that's not respected, what happens is division occurs within the church because everybody becomes their own pastor. Everybody becomes their own teacher. And the result of that is that there is confusion and disorder and division because the congregation isn't being trained, taught, and instructed in the faith as Christ has appointed. Because you see, the role of the ministry in the church is not to create division and disorder. It is to bring the saints into the unity of the knowledge of Christ. And so we ought to be thankful this morning that Christ has not sowed seeds of division in his church by the way he structured it. He's done just the opposite. Christ has established the means for the blessing, the wholeness, the unity and the maturity of the congregation of the church through the ministry which he has established. So we think, first of all, the institution of this ministry, and now we come back into our text to take up the calling of ministry here in verse 12. And we read the text again just to make sure the information is before us. The apostle said, We request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you, have charge over you in the Lord, and give you instruction. Now, I will just make an introductory remark here, and it's one that is self-evident to us. The Apostle Paul does not here use the term pastor. He does not use the term elder. He doesn't use any official title at all. Rather, he lists a set of functions. 
But the reality is, if you're to look at this in the original, there is a single article that governs all three actions. One article. So it would read, the ones who diligently labor and have charge and give you instruction. Therefore, the grammar points us to the fact that there is one set of people who fulfill the threefold function, which indicates to us that Matthew Poole is correct. Matthew Poole, that great 17th century Puritan expositor and theologian, says, Paul does not describe them in the name of their office. He describes them by their work. How they got pastors, we don't know. Paul doesn't record it for us. Did it happen when Paul was there? Maybe. Did it happen after Paul left and a, a commission of presbytery came in and ordained them? We don't know. Perhaps it was when Timothy came back and, and checked on the congregation. But whatever the case may be, we can tell, we can, we can verify from the very way Paul describes the labor going on, that these people, and there seems to have been multiple pastors, and it makes sense, it was a large and growing and vibrant congregation or church, so they had multiple pastors. And he describes the work of the ministry under these three terms and functions. Diligently labors among you, has charge over you, and gives you instruction. So let's think about the ministerial calling now. And we see the very first aspect of it, and it's this, diligent labor. And uh, you know what's interesting about that word is it means to work hard. It is uh, a term that refers to manual labor. It is the very term that the Apostle Paul used to describe his work of, of being a tent maker. Somebody who earns their bread by the sweat of their brow. But um, as time went by, Paul began to use this term as what we might say a favorite term for describing the work of the ministry. And we know that's true because I already quoted this text from you. 1 Timothy 5.17, where he referred to elders who work hard at preaching. The same verb here. Those who earn their living at preaching by the sweat of their brow. Now, what I want you to do is turn over to another text, and that's 2 Timothy 2.15, where you can get, uh, get sense of this aspect of the ministry of the Word as diligent labor. 2 Timothy 2.15. I just want to make a series of remarks here because I think this puts into perspective exactly what the Apostle is speaking about when he says ministerial calling is a diligent labor. He says here, be diligent. He's speaking to Timothy now as a pastor in the church of Ephesus. Be diligent to present yourself to prove to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. The very first thing that I would point out to you as we think about this text is the Apostle Paul describes ministry as work. He describes the ministry as work, hard work. Second of all, he says, working hard at the ministry is commanded. Notice the very initial verb in verse 15. You be diligent. This is one of those Greek terms which says, 
uh, basically maximize every ounce of energy. Maximize every amount of energy. And by the way, it's an imperative mood. It means it is commanded. You must do this if you are called to this office. And the labor is described here. And the labor is this. Accurately handling the word of truth. You know what that word accurately handling means? It means to cut a straight course. You know, uh, it'd be like taking up a pair of scissors and uh, watch my mom do this a few times as a kid when she used to practice sewing at home. Cut out this big bolt of fabric and lay a pattern over it and put pins in it and mark it out and then cut out each little piece. Accurately cut. Precise cut. And the thing that the pastor is to do is is accurately cut a course through the word. We've talked about this morning prepositions and pronouns and definite articles. And we often speak of conjunctions and becauses and therefores and thuses and howevers and contrastive conjunctions. But we do this all the time because the reason is so that we cut a straight course in the word. So that you are able to understand that the things you hear are not the musings of the pastor, but the word. Because there is this solemn obligation laid upon the pastor. He is to accurately cut a straight course through what? The word of truth. And you see the, the very description of the word enhances and reinforces the duty. We're dealing with nothing less than the truth. And so the obligation is that careful handling. And then the Apostle Paul reinforces the strength of this by saying, failure to work hard is shameful. Notice what it says here. He is to present himself, approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. You see, it's shameful for one to stand behind this sacred desk and to speak inaccurately, to handle the word with irreverence, to really not be studied and know what it is you're seeing, but just offer pious insights and platitudes. It's a gross sin. It's shameful to do that. So Calvin says here, all idle bellies are excluded from the number of pastors. Why is all this so important? Because this ministry takes place under the all-seeing eye of God. Notice how Paul puts it. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God or before God. This ministry of the word which you're sitting under this morning here takes place under the all-seeing, omniscient, all-knowing eye of God. And he knows whether the truth is being proclaimed. He knows whether the word is being accurately handled. He knows whether a straight course is being cut. So only a fool or the most spiritually dull person in the world would take this flippantly and irreverently and carelessly. And so then we would have to say this morning that those who don't handle the word accurately don't deserve respect. 
They are to be ashamed. Lazy, inaccurate, irreverent, careless handling of the word is a dishonor. It dishonors Christ. I have a note, one last thing about this ministry of labor, which the Apostle Paul speaks of here. And I think it's very significant, as he says, who diligently labor among you. The ministry does not take place outside of the congregation from some other place. The ministry takes place within the congregation. The ministry takes place as one who comes alongside of, who stands behind your pulpit and preaches to you. Those are the people the Apostle Paul exhorts the congregation to show their reverence and appreciation and respect for. Not somebody you hear on the internet, but the person who Christ raised up before you. We have a terrible problem today in the church where people download celebrity pastors and listen to them all day long and revere them and love them and hang on their every word. And then they put up with their pastor. This shouldn't be the case because a person who's called to do the ministry, as we've just expounded it here with diligence, with labor, with accuracy, with integrity, handling the word with carefulness. That person is bringing the word to you for your benefit, for your soul's good, for your being built up. It's that person that Paul speaks of here who stands in front of you and labors in your midst. So we have, first of all, the calling is to be diligent. The second is spiritual oversight And this is where we get into that territory where I said this pastor-teacher has a a dual function, if you will. It's to be a part of the rule within the church, a spiritual rule, but but also the ministry of the Word. And, And here now, the apostle would seem to draw in that idea of the shepherd, of the ruler, as he speaks of those who have charge over you. Charge over you. He describes this in... 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, where he says that the person who would be qualified for the eldership must be someone who rules his own household well. Because the apostle goes on to say, if he doesn't rule his own household well, how will he rule in the house of God? So this very verb talks about the eldership. We, we know that. And the thing that this verb captures here, this idea of charge over you, is the idea of spiritual oversight. And it's a solemn oversight. So I want you to turn with me to Hebrews 13, chapter 7, or verse 17. Hebrews 13, verse 17. It is a solemn oversight, and we're told that it's charge over you and the Lord, which means it's appointed by Christ. It's according to the law of Christ. It's for the glory of Christ. It's according to the goals of Christ, but it's also Christ to you. It's Christ using the means of eldership to oversee your soul. I want you to read here with me what it says in verse 17. Obey your leaders, that's our verb here, who submit to you for they keep watch over your soul. Here what we're talking about, those with the charge over you, and uh, notice what they do as those who will give account. You see, the thing about the eldership is that 
Jesus Christ has raised up people to have charge over you. You have charge over your life. There's no doubt about that. But you have something else. You have yourself and then you have the elders. That's Jesus Christ and he's working through that office. But, but these elders have something very specific that they do. They have a charge over your soul. They have a spiritual watch over you. And the thing that makes this so solemn for anybody who ever takes on that office is it says that that elder will have to give an account before Christ. And this is what makes this job so uh, uh, fearful, I guess you'd say at times. This is the reason why, which you don't see, that, that your pastors and elders weep over decisions made. We, we are, are tremendously discouraged about problems when they rise up. Sin and division and strife and, and people walking away from the faith. Because the weight is upon them. And so they sit and ask, what could we have done different? What was left undone we should have done? What means could have been improved? What, what better wisdom could have been furnished? And the reason is because of the weightiness of the call. It's not just you that has oversight. It's, it's the elders and the pastor, which is Christ to you. And so then, when the elder and pastor come to you and hold you to account, it, it's not just somebody with the first name that you recognize. It's Christ. And how sad it is that people thumb their nose at Christ. People depart and walk straight out of here and just thumb the nose to Christ. They change their address their phone number, their email. It's as if they're in protective custody somehow. Somebody that sits here for years, who you know by name, who you broke bread with. And then all of a sudden they don't know you, which is they don't know Christ. And this is the solemn obligation and duty of the ministry of shepherding and rule. This overwatch. When you hear that, people of God, it ought to reinforce within you this desire for submissiveness because it's not just a submissive to somebody whose name you know. It is a submissiveness and a reverence to Christ. He gives the charge over for the good of your soul. Remind yourself this morning how you treat your pastor and how you treat your elder is how you treat Jesus Christ. If you're disrespectful, irreverent, and unsubmissive, to them, that's what you are to Jesus Christ. He's appointed him. He's appointed those to be the overwatch so that it will be good for your soul. It won't turn out well if you reject that. There's another thing here. It's the last thing that the apostle raises here about this pastoral ministry. And coming back into 1 Thessalonians 5.12, I'd like to just describe what he says here as um, corrective instruction. Corrective instruction. 
Notice that it says gives you instruction. And uh, this is not the worst translation in the world. Um, but, but this word here, nuthateo, that is used, it, it can mean instruction. And, but, but it has more of an instruction by way of seeking to influence or to change. Uh, Matthew Poole puts it like this. He says this word signifies putting into the mind by way of instruction or upon the mind by way of counsel, threatening, and reproof. See that? So it's not just a mere communication of facts. It is a weightier communication of facts, if you will, with an aim for amendment. And because the word is so rich and I I think so... Um, necessary for us to appreciate about the ministry of shepherding. I'm just going to take just a minute here to sketch out the sense of this term so that we really appreciate it. I think it's foundational for us to appreciate it because it's so necessary to the office of ministry that there is this corrective instruction. But it's got to be done the right way. And so the Apostle Paul uses this very same term in 1 Corinthians 4, 14, when he says, I don't write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. See, there, the word for uh, our, in our text that is translated instruction is, is translated admonish, and that, that grasps the force of it. He says, I don't say these things to, to shame you. See, he's talking about how he's bringing the word to them, and he is correcting them. He says, I'm not trying to humiliate you. No, I'm trying to admonish you as children. And not in a demeaning way, but this speaks of the deepest love and affection because it has in view that of a father's concern for his children. And you know a father who loves their child? They don't speak to them to berate them. They don't speak to them to shame them. They don't speak to them to harass them to do violence to them. A father who loves their child sometimes must speak sternly, but when they do, the admonition is not just to release their anger, it's to protect by way of teaching. Your mama did this to you when you are young because you wouldn't stop going up to that wood stove. And the closer you got to that wood stove, the louder her voice and solemnity of the warning would come. Why? Because no mama in her right mind wants little baby to be burned by the stove. Because that lesson is a hard lesson and a painful one. So the kind of admonition that's in view is a corrective kind of speech, but not one that's harsh or mean-spirited or out of a sense of irritation and anger, but it's out of a concern to say, if you don't turn from this course, it's dangerous. And so that's one sense. This is about the tone of the language. It comes out of concern. The Apostle Paul was very concerned that pastors use that kind of language too. And I love this text because it's one that is a great guide for ministry. When the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, he says, um, Don't sharply rebuke an older man. Appeal to him as a father. To the younger men as brothers, to the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters. You see, he says, consider the family relation when you're talking to the people of God. It is, it is disgraceful for a pastor to address an older brother 
as if he was a child. There is to be a carefulness and a respect that's warranted due to the age. And even as to those who are his age or younger, he doesn't teach them as opponents, but he speaks to them as brothers. And older women and women of the same age, carefulness. The tone of ministry admonition is important, but it still must be there. The same word is used in Colossians 1.28. I think that's a great text for us because I want us to see here from Colossians 1.28 that it is indeed a pastoral form of communication, this idea of admonition. Because here the Apostle Paul speaks of his own ministry and he says in verse 28 of Colossians 1, we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. So here's our term instruction. Now it's correctly translated here, admonishing. And here he says, um, we proclaim him. He's speaking of preaching. That's that great verb for preaching. And then what follows explains what he means by this preaching, how it's done. And he says, we admonish. Corrective sort of proclamation, corrective exposition of the word. But I want you to notice the reason for it. And the reason for it, it says we may present every man complete. Well, you know what that word complete means? It means mature. It means mature. It's the very word that Paul uses in Ephesians 4.13 to talk about the purpose for which the ministry is given so that we would all attain to maturity. You know, the Bible doesn't have good things to say about people who remain childish. It doesn't. We, uh, we exult in childish stuff today, don't we? Ours is a culture that celebrates youth. And, and really, there's nothing more disgusting than to see older people dressing like young people, acting like young people so they can appear as if they're cool. It's a disgrace because in a biblical worldview and model, the older a person becomes, the more mature they become. And that maturity is not just so people can pat them on the back and say, man, that person's mature. That maturity is to be broken off as goodness to others. Guidance, help, wisdom, encouragement. See, the aim of the ministry, as the Apostle Paul sets it forth, is that the people of God wouldn't be children. It's fascinating that the preacher in the book of the Hebrews has to stop for a minute, and he reprimands the people of God, and he says, I don't understand while you're still babies. By now, he says, you should be ready for meat. Because the aim of the ministry, as it expands the whole of the word of God, is to lead to spiritual maturity and growth. You see, that's uh, what the Apostle Paul aimed at. And one way that happens is admonition. You see, there's no way to improve on something without knowing you're doing it wrong. Correction. I, I think back over my years in, in playing ball, some of my favorite coaches now were those that I can remember how enough enough concern about uh, things that they would yell at me and make me run extra sprints so I could get it right. Correction is critical to enhance 
performance and improvement. I can't know how to get better if I don't know what I'm doing wrong. And that's what the apostle is saying here. This word instruct, nuthateo, admonition, is corrective in its force. Let me give you one last passage, and I think this will really draw it out in a very complete way. We've seen how it's a fatherly sort of tone. We've seen how it is admonition with a name. But look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14 and following, because this really helps, I think, cement the notion of this corrective instruction. 2 Thessalonians 3.14, and Paul speaks here to the Thessalonians about a certain group of people within the church, or at least those who are naming themselves as believers and Christians. And he says, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet, don't regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So the the scenario is quite clear. There are people who the Apostle Paul envisions won't obey the letter. What is it? The inspired word of God. He says there are going to be some people who are too proud and too haughty and too arrogant and too insubmissive and too unteachable to listen to the inspired word of God. The Apostle says that disobedience is to be corrected by what? Admonition. Admonition. Corrective admonition. Corrective influence. You see, for the ministry of the word to do its job, it doesn't just explain the text. It does do that. It expounds it. It explains it. But it also applies the word of God. It applies the Word of God. Uh, There is this statement which has long captivated me. It's in the Westminster Subordinate Standards, the Directory for Public Worship. The particular section has to do with of the ministry of the Word. It's one of the richest gold mines in summary form of a reformed idea of what preaching is. And it says something that's very interesting. The minister is not to let the text uh, saddle in general doctrine. But he is to bring the use of it home by way of application. And it says that it will be no easy task to the pastor. Because there must be some meddling. In the application of the word of God, we preach the law. We see, here's the hope and promise of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Believe it. Run to it. Bring all of your sins this morning to the mercy of Christ. Throw them at the cross. Enjoy the peace of conscience which comes from knowing the covering in Christ's blood. Don't wait. Come there today. And then sometimes we have to preach the law and say, Jesus Christ warns you, don't do that. And there must be some threat with that because the word of God does. I pointed out to you this in our law readings before. It points, it brings in nothing less than the judgment of God upon those who refuse to repent. Not because we believe judgment will come upon the elect, it will not. But the Bible itself uses that as motive to exhortation. 
So when the law is preached in the preaching of the word, it has a corrective influence. It feels meddling. It says you're doing this and you've got to stop. It does that with a fatherly tone. It does that in love. It does that with the deepest concern because we know that when we see people going down certain paths, if that's not corrected, it ends in a very bad place. And there's nothing worse than watching people make shipwreck of their soul when it could have been avoided by heeding the admonition. You see, sin and pride leads us to disrespect it because our hearts are hard. But what we have to understand this morning, people of God, as part of this ministry of shepherding is that it may need to happen from time to time. A fatherly word of counsel and correction comes because it's needed. To turn your way, your soul away from a pathway that leads to destruction. So here the Apostle Paul, as he speaks of the things that the ministers are supposed to do and they're supposed to be appreciated by the people of God, he, he ends it here with this corrective influence and instruction. Instruction in the Lord. And so these are the elements of pastoral calling that are lined out here. Diligent labor in the word, spiritual oversight, corrective instruction. And remember that all of those have a great purpose because of Christ's institution. It's so that the church would attain to the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God, that it would attain to being mature and that it would no longer be driven and tossed by waves and every wind of doctrine. It's so important that we follow this because the aims which Christ has for his church are just so important. The aims which Christ has for his church are so important. He's appointed a great end for us all. Every single one of us as members of the church, he has appointed a great end for us. Spiritual maturity, unity in Christ, overflowing with the knowledge of the Son of God, no longer being children who are unstable and tossed about by life, but firmly planted in Christ. Those are the great ends that Jesus Christ has for you this morning. Those ends aren't achieved apart from means. Jesus Christ and his grace towards his church appointed means. That means his ministry. And that ministry is diligent labor in the word, spiritual oversight, and corrective instruction. So that through these, under the power of the Holy Spirit, I can borrow again from that great text of the Apostle Paul as he speaks of the, the way of righteousness by faith. God doesn't send you on an errand. God doesn't ask you to go scale heaven's heights. God doesn't command you to walk to the ends of the earth or descend into the depths. The way of faith is this, that God in Christ graciously brings the word to you and whispers it into your ears and puts it on your tongue and settles it upon your heart. That it will achieve its purpose. Think about that. We begin to understand why this relationship between pastor and congregation must be one of peace because it has the greatest spiritual ramifications for the church, for you, 
for the congregation. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to learn from your word this morning about what you've done. About how you're working within your church. About what means you are applying to the building up of the body. So, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to be those who would receive this exposition and to dwell upon it and to meditate upon it and to to receive it and to know its great value to see how the things that Jesus Christ has appointed for us are for our good a great means of grace to establish us in faith so Lord give us a readiness of heart to receive and would you strengthen our faith and lay hold of Christ as he has been presented in the word this morning. That it would be for the edification of our soul. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.